In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Perhaps in your life you have a place where you especially like to, to pray, a place that is conducive to prayer and that you find it an easy place to pray. Maybe it's the parish where you grew up. I think for many people, this chapel is especially beautiful and quiet and helps to pray. When, it, when I was living abroad, I lived in Rome for many years. My favorite place to pray was a chapel, or like a shrine, in the, in the place where I lived, which was dedicated to the Holy Cross. And it was a very small chapel, and it was presided by a huge uh, crucifix, life-size, made of bronze. And it was sculpted by a famous... Italian named Shankolepore, and Shankolepore commissioned this, this crucifix, and he made uh, a mold from which he, he created uh, two replica images. Um, and then he destroyed the mold, so that was it. There were just two copies of it for two different shrines dedicated to the Holy Cross, one in Rome and the other in Spain. And so I was very fortunate to be able to live in a house where this famous sculpture uh, presided. And I love to pray before it. One of the fascinating aspects of this sculpture is that it is the moment just before Christ uh, dies, right? just before he expires. And so he's on the cross, but his eyes are open. And he's looking out at you. He's looking out at the viewer. His side is not pierced yet with the lance. Right? He's, still, he's still alive on the cross. And I liked to imagine when praying before this image of Jesus that it's the moment where he says, I thirst. You'll recall in the story of the Passion, there's a moment when Jesus says, Sitio, I thirst. And then the people scurry about to bring him a sponge right, with a little bit of of wine, of vinegar on it, which he sips. And then he says, it is accomplished. Some scholars have understood this to be referring to the fourth cup of the Passover meal, which Jesus surprisingly does not drink in the Last Supper. And he says during the Last Supper, I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God has come, until the kingdom of God has been fulfilled. And so, theologians have speculated that this I thirst refers to this final cup of his sacrifice, 
right, the final cup that seals the new covenant in the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus Christ. And praying before the crucifix, when we hear Jesus say, I thirst, he's certainly thirsting to complete his sacrifice, to fulfill the will of the Father. But he's also thirsting for souls. St. Josemaria liked to contemplate the fact that Jesus on the cross dies for each and every soul for each and every soul who is in need of redemption, whose sins must be forgiven. They must be redeemed. And so we can look to this smaller crucifix here, where it also looks like Jesus is still alive. His head is not drooping yet. And we can hear him say, I thirst. I thirst for you. I thirst for you for your love. I thirst for your friendship. I long to draw you into a relationship with me. I die for you. And that image of Shankalepare was mesmerizing because, again, these open eyes, right, the open eyes of our Lord looking out at the world, eyes that were not menacing, they were not threatening, they're not angry, they're not resentful, but eyes that are pierced with love. It was a stunning expression. It was very hard to pull away from that image. I miss it. I miss not praying there. Lord, from the cross, you look at me, you look at each one of us, and you, ask, you tell us that you thirst. Now, the fact that that sculpture was made of bronze is no accident. Right? Shankolepore could have made that sculpture out of wood. He could have made it out of marble, out of gesso, plaster. But he chooses to make it out of bronze, this kind of shiny bronze that looks almost like gold. And it's no accident because clearly... The artist was evoking, among, among other things, that image that Moses had made in the desert of the bronze serpent. You recall that scene from the Old Testament. It's precisely what introduces the readings for Monday's great feast, the feast of the exaltation of the Holy Cross. In the first reading for that Mass, which we'll celebrate, it's a great feast of the Church, is from the book of Numbers. And it tells how the Lord punished the chosen people for murmuring against Moses and against Yahweh, against God. Right? They were complaining against the Lord. And so, as a kind of punishment, snakes appear right, and cause havoc among the Israelites, poisonous snakes. And so the people realize that they were wrong to complain, and they repent. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us, to take away these snakes. 
So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. Anyone who is, who is, is, is suffering from these snakes, look to the serpent and you will live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze, and he cast this sculpture in bronze, and he placed it on a pole, on a big stick, and he raised it up above the crowd. And whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the snake of bronze and live. Now all this can be, this can, all this seems a bit strange, a bit odd, and also a bit arbitrary to the topic of the cross. And yet you, Lord, in your conversation with Nicodemus in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, you refer precisely to this scene. You say, And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is raised up on the pole of the cross. His body is exposed to the world. His suffering is put on display. And whoever looks to him and believes in him will be saved, will have eternal life. Lord, to believe in you, we have to look to your cross. We have to be willing to gaze upon your dying for us. In the same Gospel of John, the, la- the last, one of the last scenes is the passion of our Lord. And there's that moment where the centurion goes up and he pierces the side of Jesus with a lance. Right? This is by order of, of his superior to make sure that the three are dead. They need to take them down from the cross, the two thieves and Jesus of Nazareth. So they, they break the legs of the two thieves, but they see that Jesus is already dead. And instead of breaking his bones, they pierce him with a lance. And John is fixated on this fact. We could say he's almost obsessed about this fact. And he pulls in all these prophecies. And he he quotes Zechariah, referring to our Lord's death. They will look on the one whom they have pierced. They will look towards the one that they have pierced. Behold the pierced one. To believe in you, Lord, we have to look. We have to look into your eyes, open on the cross, and staring into each one of our eyes and saying, I thirst. I thirst for you. I thirst for your love. In that conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus concludes, For God sent his Son into the world not to condemn the world, but so that through him, the world might be saved. Precisely through this cross of yours, Lord. In order to be saved, we have to look at the cross. We have to be willing to be healed by this standard that's lifted up into the sky before our eyes. A sign of triumph. A sign of exultation. Right, and that's the great message 
of Monday's feast, the exaltation of the Holy Cross. We triumph in this standard of the Lord that we raise up. You know, throughout the year, the liturgical calendar, there are several key feasts, we could say, concerning the cross. All of them commemorating this, this wood upon which Jesus was crucified. I think, the, obviously, the most obvious is Good Friday. So in Good Friday, in Holy Week, we worship the cross of Christ. We venerate the cross of our Lord. In fact, we go up and we kiss that wood. We embrace the wood upon which Jesus died for us. In the centers of Opus Dei, there are two days in the year when we decorate the cross that stands outside of this oratory with roses, with flowers. On Monday, the exaltation of the Holy Cross, and on May 3rd, which is the finding of the true cross by St. Helen. And on those two days, we adorn this instrument of, of our Lord's torture with flowers. It seems such a strange thing. We have to remember that the cross for anyone in Jesus' time was like the electrical chair for us. It was a, a sign of capital punishment. Not a very attractive image. And yet, the Christians from the very beginning realized that the cross has been transformed from a, a sign of ignominy, of shame, into a sign of triumph, into something that can be loved. And this is what Paul tells the, the, the Galatians right, in one of his early letters. He says, we should glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We should hold it up. We should adorn it with flowers. We should glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in whom is our salvation, life, and resurrection. In other translations, it says we should boast in the cross of Christ. Well, Lord, this is a good chance for us to examine ourselves, examine our conscience, and ask, what do we boast in? What do we typically glory in? How easily we, we kind of let things get to our head, I don't know, like when we're paid a compliment. It's very easy, at least I speak from my own experience, it's very easy to get kind of puffed up. Right? We can kind of boast over our accomplishments, our resume, our CV. In the age of social media, who hasn't gone back to look over a post that they put up that's gotten lots of likes? And maybe you've gone back several times to see whether the likes have increased, right? Kind of the like ticker has gone up. We like likes. We like the thumbs up. We like the little heart. And we can glory in these things. We can boast in them. And it can go to our head. We can, I think, easily fall into pride. But what is Paul telling us?
the, the second leader of Opus Dei after the founder, St. Josemaria, was a man named Alvaro del Portillo. He's now actually been beatified. He's a, a blessed Alvaro. When he was elected in 1975 to take over as the head of Opus Dei after St. Josemaria's death, this election was unanimous. Basically, the people that, that came together it was like a whole congress of men and women to elect the new prelate. They had no doubt that Don Alvaro would be the best candidate. And so the election was very quick. It was not as contentious as some of our political elections today. And so it was unanimous. And in the first day of the votes, Don Alvaro came out the winner. And once it was announced, the whole Congress uh, applauded the new, the new father, right? the new prelate of Opus Dei. And this was a boisterous applause because they were very, very happy with who they chose. They were very proud of Don Alvaro. And in fact, they, they stood up. It was like a standing ovation. And so Don Alvaro, I think, was, was very grateful for this, but he was also embarrassed by that applause. And so he actually tried to kind of quiet them down, have them sit down, but they only reacted with more applause. And it went on for several minutes. And you could see that Don Alvaro was, was embarrassed. In his humility, he, he was overwhelmed by this and, and, and didn't really like it. And apparently someone that was standing near him in this moment heard him whisper under his breath. In Spanish he said, Que mi único aplauso sea al cruz, a la cruz. May my only applause be directed to the cross. This is what we want to boast in, right? This is what we want to be proud of, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We glory in your cross, O Lord. Lord, we thank you for your cross. And we ask you to, to learn how to appreciate it in our own life. Because you, in calling us to participate in your life, through baptism, through the sacraments, through our prayer life, you've invited us to your cross. Right? In order to love you, in order to know you, we need to be willing to know your cross, right? Jesus says this very clearly to the first disciples. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. But what does that mean? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for you? To take up our cross daily? It means that something that seems so meaningless, like illness, pain, failures, renunciations, all of this becomes meaningful. It becomes a path. Why? Because you, Lord, took that suffering upon yourself and you transformed it into love, a redemptive love. And so I, too, can sanctify those things I find difficult. 
I too can transform them into something meaning, from something meaningless into something meaningful, into something worthwhile. When St. Josemaria, the founder of Opus Dei, would celebrate the new year, you know, I'm sure you guys go to New Year's parties, right? Here in New York City, people watch the ball drop in Times Square. I've never gone to it, nor do I, nor do I care to. St. Josemaria, one way in which he would celebrate the new year was to write a little dedication in the Epacta. The Epacta is like the liturgical book that you'll find in any sacristy that spells out the, the kind of indications for the year. Right? So tomorrow, the 25th Sunday in Ordinary Time, he would take that book for the new liturgical year and he would write out a little dedication. And almost every year he would write out the same thing in Latin. In Letitiae, nulla die sine crucis, which means joyfully, no day without the cross. Implying that for St. Josemaria, who was close to God, his joy, his happiness was precisely dependent on the need for the cross. He didn't want a single day to go by without some encounter with the cross. Why? Because if, if we are to be followers of our Lord, we need to take up the cross daily and follow him. But precisely because the cross is our encounter with Jesus. We don't know Jesus unless we know him crucified. Lord, I want to get to know you better. I know that to be happy... For my life to be happy, it must be united more and more to you. But you are on the cross. And so, in Letizia, nulla dies in crucis, joyfully, no day without the cross. And that's going to look different for each one of us. Each of us has a different cross to carry. But the important thing is that we embrace it that we not flee from it, that we not run away. Not only that we accept the crosses that are sent to us, but we also seek out the cross. This is what we call mortification, right? voluntary mortification. And this can be as simple as renouncing something that we like. The church, from the very beginning, has practiced fasting. Right? What is fasting but a type of mortification, where we renounce something that we, that we like, which is food, and we take less food as a way to identify ourselves with Jesus Christ, to participate in some small way in his suffering. There was a famous priest in Ireland in uh, the late 19th century who inspired St. Josemaria quite a bit. His name was Father Doyle. Father William Doyle, he was a Jesuit who was also an army chaplain. So he, part of his ministry was working with the military. And I think he was, he was, he, he was in World War I. So he was a priest in World War I. 
He may have died in battle, I'm not sure. But in his memoirs, it documents a, a small kind of mortification that he would live, or that he struggled to live every day, which, was, which he called the Battle of the Butter. And the Battle of the Butter for Father Doyle simply meant that every day at breakfast, he would try to offer the mortification, right, the sacrifice, of not putting butter on his toast. And you can think, oh, well, that's not such a big deal. Well, for an Irishman, <laughs> for someone from Ireland, I think also the same for an Englishman, someone from Great Britain, it's like not having water. Right? Like butter, butter is it's essential. And so in his, in his journal, he would document this battle. And he'd say, some days I won, and some days I lost. Right? There were days when he, he gave in to his kind of weakness and slathered butter all over his toast. Right? In another moment, in his, in his, I think in a letter to someone, he wrote, What a love the saints all had for suffering. There must be something in it. So he, he was really struggling to understand the value of suffering. And he was seeking it out. He said, there must be something in this, because all the saints have done it. Lord, help me to understand this mysterious relationship between joy and the cross. Right? Joyfully, no day without the cross. How is that possible? Because when I think of suffering, Lord, I don't think of joy. I don't think of happiness. I instinctively think that something that, that, that makes me suffer is going to make me sad. And yet, for you, joy and suffering come together. You say, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross. Which basically means, if you want to be happy, take up your cross. In that sculpture of Shankolepore, which I described at the beginning, I said that it's made, it's made of bronze. And the process to make it required the fabrication of a mold, right? A mold in which the bronze was poured. And so normally how this is done is that the sculptor First sculpts his image, I think, in gesso. Then he, he, he makes like a negative with that sculpture. Right? Like a, I don't know, like when you make cupcakes, right? you put them in, in these little molds, and then you pull them out afterwards, and voila, you have a little cake. Well, sculptor, sculptors do this, right? They, they, they make this mold, a kind of negative, and then they pour the bronze in. It's a complicated process. But in order for the sculpture to, to work, for it to come out perfectly, without any aberrations, the mold has to be perfectly clean. It has to be without any spots, any pieces of sand, any specks.
And so the mold is, is reviewed several times before that precious bronze is poured in. Well, Lord, we're called to be other Christs, Christ himself. But we're called to identify ourselves completely with Jesus. That is what our baptism is meant for. In our baptism, we are grafted onto Christ, and we're called to become another Christ, Christ himself. And this is a process that requires, we could say, stripping away so many aspects of our lives that don't belong to him and that somehow get in the way, namely our sin. But this stripping away is a beautiful thing because in cleaning out that mold, getting rid of all those little, we could say, blemishes, in doing so, Jesus can fill himself He can fill us with himself. He can pour, we could say, his bronze into us. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the great artist, he molds us into another Christ. And St. Paul, who invited us to glory in the cross of Jesus, in another moment he says, I seek to complete in my flesh the passion and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this process of identification, this cleaning of the mold and this filling it with Jesus, is precisely through completing in our flesh the passion of the Lord. What needs to be stripped away? What needs to be, in a sense, let go of? Our laziness, our sensuality, our unchecked anger, our resentfulness, our unruly imagination. So many things, Lord, that they need to be purified. And we want to do this with your help, Lord. We want to help you carry the cross in our own lives. What are those small mortifications that we can develop? There's the battle of the butter. Maybe that's where we need to to work. Or perhaps... It's in other areas. Smiling at the person who annoys us. Working with greater intensity and order. Living punctuality. Being more detached from our phones. That's a great area for mortification. Perhaps eating and drinking a little less. Maybe we need to be a little lighter on the alcohol. Controlling our tongue, how easy it is for us to answer back or to be fresh with someone. Guarding our sight in the street or on the internet from things that can harm us, from things that offend God. So many forms of Penance, we could say, of mortification. Those are ugly words, though. Let's replace that with so many forms of loving Jesus on the cross. Because we want that mold, which is ourselves, to be receptive. Lord, fill us with yourself. We can finish by turning to Our Lady, 
we call, there's many titles of Mary in, in the history of the church. And in the litany that's prayed during the rosary, we call her spiritual vessel. Vessel of honor. Singular vessel of devotion. And what a beautiful image. Mary is this vessel, she is this vase, we could say, that receives perfectly everything that God wants to give her. And she stands at the foot of the cross, right? She knows how to co-redeem with her son. And because she identifies so fully with Jesus and what, with what Jesus is doing, she becomes another Christ par excellence. And so she is the model for us. Mother Mary, help us also, also to be a singular vessel of devotion. Help us to love the cross as you did. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations that you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.